Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Metabolic syndrome is a common underdiagnosed condition among psychiatric patients exacerbated by second-generation antipsychotics with the exception of aripiprazole and ziprazidone. This study evaluated the prescribing and treating behavior of psychiatrists with regard to antipsychotics and metabolic syndrome before and after implementation of a mandatory admission order set and electronic notification of results. Baseline data from 9,100 consecutive psychiatric admissions to a mental health hospital were compared to post-intervention data, which included 1,499 patient records. The intervention initiated standardized admission testing with electronic notification to psychiatrists when patients met metabolic syndrome criteria according to Axis 3 of the DSM-4. At baseline, only 2.4% of patients were evaluated for metabolic syndrome. Of these, 34.5% met metabolic syndrome criteria. Only 15 patients were comprehensively treated. No chart listed metabolic syndrome under Axis 3 of the DSM-4. After the intervention, the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome increased from 0% to 29.3%. Less than 3% of patients were switched to drugs with a more benign metabolic profile. Mandatory intake testing increased the number of patients evaluated for metabolic syndrome. Electronic alerts increased the inclusion of metabolic syndrome among discharge diagnoses, but rarely affected prescribing practices. This work was financially supported by the institutional grant from the Kiwa Healthcare District Foundation. The incidence of PTSD and obesity are on the rise, and evidence continues to support the observation that individuals who have symptoms of PTSD are more likely to develop obesity in their lifetime. The incidence of obesity in individuals with PTSD, including war veterans, women, and children exposed to trauma, is not solely attributable to psychotropic medications but actual pathophysiologic mechanisms have not been fully delineated. Additionally, there are no studies today demonstrating that obese individuals are predisposed to developing PTSD compared to the general population. This review article explores the pathogenic pathways common to both PTSD and obesity, which include inflammation, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, cellular structures, and neuroendocrine activation. More research is needed in human subjects to understand the pathogenic pathways common to both PTSD and obesity and to further clarify the direction of identified associations. Ideally, in the future, clinical interventions targeting these pathways may be able to modify the course of PTSD and obesity. 
The outcome of studies investigating the utility of angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers in the treatment of PTSD symptoms will be relevant to control both PTSD and obesity. Importantly, outcomes assessing inflammation, obesity, and cardiac function in the same subjects should also be determined. The implications of this research would be essential for treatment, prevention, and potential public health reforms. Identity disturbances have long been considered a fundamental feature of psychopathology. A sense of personal persistence of identity over time has been referred to as diachronicity or continuous identity and can be measured as the degree a person feels like the same person when looking into their past or their future. Preliminary research suggests that a lack of continuous identity or diachronic disunity between present self and future self is associated with delinquent behavior, while poor continuous identity between past self and present self is associated with psychopathology. No research to date, however, has reliably examined the relationship between continuous identity, depression, and suicidal symptom severity. In this article, the authors examine the relationship between continuous identity, mood symptoms, negative life events, and suicidality. The data were collected using the Amazon Mechanical Turk subject pool. Multiple regression analyses revealed continuous identity disturbances were significantly associated with depressed mood. Continuous identity also predicted suicide severity even after controlling for demographic factors, negative life events, and depressed mood. Predictive discriminant analysis revealed continuous identity, depression severity, and negative life events correctly classified 74 0.1% of participants into high and low suicide risk groups. The authors conclude that lack of continuous identity is significantly associated with psychopathology and predicted both depression and suicidality severity. Integration of perceived identities may be a worthwhile goal for behavioral interventions aimed at reducing depressed mood and suicidality. Despite its long history as a psychiatric diagnosis, little is known about the sociodemographic and clinical profile of persistent delusional disorder or its subtypes, treatment response, and outcomes, particularly in India. The authors of this study examined the clinical characteristics and course of persistent delusional disorder in patients presenting to a tertiary neuropsychiatry center in India. A retrospective chart review of patients diagnosed with persistent delusional disorder between January 2000 and May 2014 was conducted. Sociodemographic and clinical data, including age at onset, total duration of the illness, clinical symptoms and treatment, hospitalizations, occupational functioning, and follow-up were extracted from the files. Delusions of infidelity and persecution are the common clinical manifestations of persistent delusional disorder irrespective of gender. Patients with persistent delusional disorder respond well to treatment with atypical antipsychotics, particularly risperidone and olanzapine. 
nearly 50% of patients with the disorder also have depressive symptoms and may benefit from antidepressant treatment in addition to antipsychotics. The challenge of treating patients with persistent delusional disorder lies in ensuring compliance and retaining them in long-term follow-up. These patients have a good prognosis, provided adherence to the treatment regimen can be ensured. The improvement that people expect from treatment is known to influence the outcomes of clinical trials for depression. In addition, people's willingness to participate in a clinical trial in the first place, based on the type of treatment they may receive, will affect how generalizable that study's results are for patients. The authors of this article conducted an online survey of 615 participants from the general public who were randomly assigned to read one of four descriptions of clinical trials for depression that varied based on the type of treatment offered. The clinical trial descriptions included the following conditions. Medication versus placebo. Medication versus medication. Psychotherapy versus placebo. Or psychotherapy versus psychotherapy. After reading the study description, participants rated expected improvement, treatment credibility, and willingness to participate in the trial. There were no differences detected in expected improvement or credibility across the different clinical trials. However, willingness to participate was higher in both the psychotherapy versus placebo and psychotherapy versus psychotherapy trials compared with the medication versus medication trial. Greater willingness to participate in the medication versus medication trial was related to receiving previous psychiatric treatment, higher depressive symptoms, and greater treatment acceptability in general. The authors conclude that the public's tendency to prefer psychotherapy to treat depression also extends to their willingness to participate in clinical trials of depression. Thus, there may be a greater selection bias in medication trials for depression, making them less generalizable to primary care settings compared with psychotherapy trials based on differences in the acceptability of these treatments. This study was supported by internal funds provided by Skidmore College. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Steed Family Memory Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of Mr. A, an 82-year-old man with cognitive changes, including insidious onset of symptoms, fluctuating course, rapid eye movement sleep behavior disturbances, Parkinsonian symptoms, and affective lability. Does this patient have Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal lobar degeneration, or Lewy body disease? Are his symptoms related to Parkinson's disease or another medical condition? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this instructive offering. A patient with no past psychiatric history presents with visual hallucinations and paranoid thoughts for the past three months. 
He had been living his normal life as an electrical engineer with a wife and two young children. What brought about this acute psychosis? Around this time, he was trying out a healthier lifestyle, complete with five herbal supplements he purchased at his local supermarket. What connection could these supplements have with his current psychotic state? In pursuit of answers, the authors of this report discussed the published data with regard to supplements causing psychosis, herb-to-herb -herb interactions, and the reliability of herbal supplement manufacturers. Have you ever wondered why physicians try to avoid prescribing opioids for patients with chronic pain? Have you ever struggled to decide whether prescribing opioids is appropriate or wondered how likely it is that one of your patients will become dependent following prescription of an opioid? If you have, then the case vignette and discussion presented in this issue's rounds from the General Hospital should prove useful. The authors discuss the patient, provider, and system factors that interfere with prescribing an opioid. They point out that opioid prescription is fraught with challenges. However, concern for opioid misuse can result in undertreatment of pain. Risk assessment calculators, alternative therapies, and objective outcome measures are some of the tools that physicians can use to help balance the risks and benefits of opioid use. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to read a new entry into our psychotherapy casebook section, many timely case reports, and special web-based interactive content. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Also, we are excited to offer a digital flip-page edition of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn-page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our digital journal as we think you will like it. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.